Welcome to Aerospace Nation. Uh, today, we're bringing together two key Air Force leaders to speak to their respective roles as providers and employers of aerospace power. And we're really fortunate to have today's panelists. First, General Mark Kelly. He's the commander of Air Combat Command, located at Joint Base Langley-Eustis. He's responsible for organizing and equipping combat-ready air, space, cyber, and intelligence forces for all Air Force and Joint Force mission demands. Also joining us today is General James Hecker, the commander of U.S. Air Forces in Europe and Africa, commander of Allied Air Command, and the director of the Joint Air Power Competence Center. This means he's responsible for employing those forces provided by General Kelly in defense of our interests and those of our allies and partners in theater, which is, of course, especially important now as we grapple with the effects of the war in Ukraine. Um, so thanks to both of you for being here today. I uh, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedules. And I thought what we do to kind of kick this thing off is to offer both of you the opportunity to provide your perspectives on what's going on in the world today, and uh, then we'll jump into some uh, Q&A. But we'll start yeah, sure. with uh, General Kelly. Sure, sure. Uh, well, over to you. Thanks, thanks. Well, what's going on in the world today is obviously uh, interesting times, you know, and like the old Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times. It is definitely interesting, and that's obviously interesting in General Hecker's uh, backyard as well every day. Uh, we actually were here this week uh, on a couple of conferences. One is our ACC Warfighter Conference, where we talk about our highest classification of our sensors, weapons, platforms, you know, and et cetera. Um, and then we'll go into a bigger Air Force conference, the Magic Commander Conference, uh, this week. So it's really good to be here today with you, and it's good to be here with my brothers and sisters, with the fellow MAGCOMs. What we talk about in these conferences is very often uh, the security uh, structure today around the globe and going forward, you know, because we have to chart our path forward for the folks that will come in behind us. Uh, what we don't talk about, uh, but is frankly part of the calculus that we have to consider is, you know, going all the way back to 9-11, uh, mainly because that event, uh, obviously, as everyone knows, set the conditions for military operations for the next two decades. Um, the folks that were here in D.C. or anywhere around the nation or globe know that uh, on 12 September, we obviously started a week of crisis action, global force management sourcing, and our nation and our airmen and soldiers, sailors, marines answered the call as you would expect them to. Um, less well known is the fact that we followed that first week of crisis action, global force management sourcing, with another 1,000 weeks of crisis action, global force management sourcing. And so the force was worked hard to do our nation's business, and great, great patriots around the globe answered the call and did that. Um, but while we were focused in that region of the globe, our peer adversaries were focused on us and seeing it and saw it as an opportunity to close the gap, you know, and be and truly be go from near peer to peer adversary. And so uh, that's a focus that we have during all these conferences, and we have to chart a way ahead. Closer to home at ACC, when people ask me how things are going in ACC, I answer, they're going good. Uh, we are, unlike uh, Joe Hecker, is a component MAGCOM to UCOM. And ACC, we're an organized, trained, equipped, and I'd say force provide MAGCOM. And things are going pretty well. As far as our organizations, they have adapted uh, and migrated uh, to be more towards peer adversaries, whether it be our lead wings, our ACE events, uh, and other constructs like that. Our training has adapted pretty well, whether it be our virtual testing training center, whether it be agile combat employment exercise, whether 
be taking red flag in our weapons school integration phase off the coast of California to put those distances, which are MNLC in a, uh, in a pier fight. Uh, the equipping stuff is going good. Uh, we just obviously got the E7 on contract. EC37 is tracking, NGADS tracking, JADAMS tracking. Uh, F-35 is obviously always a focus, uh, what we do. Uh, F-15EX uh, is a focus. And so whether it be platform sensors, weapons, uh, you name it, uh, they're, they're tracking well. Um, the force providing stuff's going better because during those two decades plus in the Middle East, we frankly consumed our uh, Air Force at a rate that exceeded our ability to generate the Air Force. And as me and you have talked before, it doesn't matter if it's uh, money, muscle, tissue, morale, or combat power. If you consume it at a rate that exceeds your ability to generate it, you're going to end up some challenges at the end of the day. So again, uh, let me hand it off to my uh, brother from Ramstein. But in ACC, uh, the organized training, equipping, and force providing is going good. Uh, efforts are tacking along. Uh, the majority of them, frankly, are late to need, but we are working as hard as we can uh, every day on them. Very good. Appreciate those insights. And General Hacker, over to you. Well, thank you, General Deptula, and thanks to the Mitchell Institute for having both of us. Um, let me first, by starting off by saying, we couldn't do what we did, what we do, if it wasn't for Grace and his team there at Air Command, uh, Air Combat Command. What they do to provide us training and equip people, uh, what they do for to get us, you know, equipment and everything like that is just uh, absolutely essential in what we do every day. Uh, as you know, at USAFE, um, we've had this uh, conflict going on with Ukraine. And on February 24th uh, of 2023 marked the one-year anniversary of that. So we've been taking a look at different lessons learned that we've seen from that conflict over the last year to now about 13 months. And one of the things that we see is the lack of either side, whether it be the Russian or the Ukrainians, ability to get air superiority uh, has really changed us into a different fight that we haven't seen in quite a while. So what we're looking at and concentrating on in USAFE is what can we do to ensure that we get air superiority uh, should we uh, have to invoke Article 5? And then what can we do to make sure that our enemy doesn't get air superiority? So what that has us do is concentrate on some of our priorities. So number one priority to make sure that we're able to get air superiority is to make sure that we can do the counter IADS mission. Because what we've seen on both sides, both the Russian and the Ukraine, is their integrated air and missile defense is working pretty well uh, to the point uh, where they're shooting down others' aircraft. And uh, the aircraft uh, aren't as visible as they should be uh, if they're concentrated more on air superiority. So counter IADS is one of our priorities that we're looking at. And then to ensure that the enemy doesn't get air superiority, we have to concentrate on the IADS in Europe. Uh, so we're making sure that we concentrate on that. And then to get both of those, we're realizing now that we have to do information sharing like we haven't done before. So that's a third priority is how can we share information with our allies? How can they share information with us to make us both more successful on those particular missions that we talked about? And then we need to make sure we can command and control all of those things. And then lastly, we need to make sure that we're survivable. And we do that through a concept called ACE, or Agile Combat Employment, uh, which we've been witnessing the Ukraines do, and we're taking some lessons from them uh, on that. So those are the five priorities that we're looking at right now uh, in USAFE Africa. 
Wow. Well, I appreciate you both uh, providing that introduction, which is uh, extraordinarily rich in content. So what we're going to do is jump into some questions uh, uh, before we get to the uh, get to the audience. Um, that General Kelly, one of the things I'd like to do is uh, kind of segue some of your comments uh, and harken back to last year where you spoke about how our fire forces are spread pretty thin. Uh, you said that it's like trying to pay a bill for 60 multi-role fighter squadrons, but with 48 fighter squadrons and nine attack squadrons. Uh, since then, we've seen the, the fight up, and we know that we're going to get smaller as an Air Force, uh, losing a net of about 1,000 airplanes. Uh, so my question to you is, are there ways to mitigate the impact of that reduced inventory, or have we gotten to the point where... Um, in addition to all the great things the Air Force is doing, does the Air Force leadership have to start advocating that it needs more resources to meet the demands that are placed upon it? Yeah, good question. Um, and I will say day to day, uh, like your characterization, uh, it's like uh, trying to pay a bill for 60 fighter squadrons with 48 and 9 attacks. It's exactly like trying to pay a bill for 60 fighter squadrons. And that's day to day. That's not combat. And so our great uh, folks that work in the Pentagon at ACC work through those challenges. But as far as advocacy for more resources, the good news is, is that our leaders at Air Force are advocating for more resources, and that's why you'll see 72 new fighters come out uh, this next uh, FY for the first time. And matter of fact, my team can't tell me last time. So we uh, procured 48 uh, F-35s and 24 F-15X because we need them uh, out there. Besides that, I'd say we've gotten good advocacy up and down the chain, not just for fifth-gen avionics and sensors and weapons and platforms, but also fifth-gen weapons uh, in, in terms of what we need. Uh, fifth-gen Air Force needs fifth-gen weapons. You know, as you guys have heard me say before, we've committed a whole lot of time, energy, effort, resources into building this LO, low absorbable force, whether that be B2, B21, RQ-170, you know, F-22, F-35, et cetera. Uh, we will not get a great return on investment if we our weapon stocks are such that we have to put this low observable force into a range where everyone's observable. And so we're working hard on that. Also, there's really good advocacy, and I talk to the chief quite often, uh, and our A3, General Slife, they are daily advocating for uh, the correct utilization of a limited force in terms of alignment with our national defense strategy because... Um, we have to be ready to go fight any particular day. And if we run the force uh, too hard in preseason and it's all uh, worn out, it's going to be tough going into the, the main season. So I see our advocacy campaign actually coalescing, uh, not only around the Secretary's operational imperatives, but really, really good on our force design going forward to be reflected in these next coming budgets. Um, well, very good. No, thanks uh, very much for that. And we obviously... At Mitchell Institute, continue to uh, uh, to help in that regard, and uh, part of that help is reminding folks that now, after the FY uh, 24 budget, that'll be the 31st year in a row that the United States Air Force has received less funding than either the Army or the Navy, uh, and we're going to do our best to see if we can't get our friends on the Hill to to realize that and uh, correct it. Uh, General Hecker. One of the things that you alluded to in your opening um, remarks uh, was the importance of air power and uh, in relationship to the Russia-Ukraine fight, it certainly could uh, give Ukraine an edge. Um, and there is, in your discussion on 
having to deal with advanced IADs, there is some bad information floating around that if it flies, it dies. You talked about the fact that, look, we have this capability in our U.S. Air Force that we've worked on very hard over the years in terms of suppression of enemy air defenses in, in that Im importance. Uh, could you expand a little bit more on your remarks with respect to the perspectives on the value of air superiority in war in general? Yeah, you bet. You know, we are trying to get uh, the Ukrainian aircraft to be able to be more effective at what they're doing. So what we've been able to do in the past is we've given them the harm uh, missile, which goes after um, surface-to-air missile sites uh, that can kind of take those out. Uh, we've seen that that's been uh, fairly effective and helped them suppress some of those weapons. Other things that we're doing to increase the capability of their air power is we're giving them uh, what we call GBU-62, which is a JDAM 500-pound extended-range bomb, which is uh, fairly accurate. And they've used that with some success uh, as well here recently. Uh, one thing that we want to make sure, though, is that Russia does not get air superiority. And the way that we're doing that, I don't know if, if, ever, if your audience knows this, but Secretary Austin has called different countries together, whoever's willing to help the Ukraine, uh, 10 times so far since the start of the Ukrainian war. Uh, the ninth one was there at Ramstein. And when I was there, the biggest request that both President Zelensky as well as any of his officers had uh, were surface-to-air missiles to go after um, any of the inbound cruise missiles that the uh, Russians are shooting, the inbound uh, unmanned UAVs uh, that are one way, you know, coming in and trying to attack their infrastructure. Uh, and then, of course, if they try to fly any aircraft in. So the 45 nations responded, you know, and we were able to get them a lot more surface-to-air missiles. But it's something that they're using constantly because of the tactics that the Russians are using. But because Russia can't gain that air superiority, uh, really, it the only thing they have to do now is take one-way UAVs that they buy from Iran and shoot them across and try to hit infrastructure. And out of, you know, the 20 that they send, you know, I would say probably 90% of them get shot down, but they, a couple of them find their way. Uh, and then if you look at uh, the other thing that they're doing is they're taking cruise missiles that are launched off of their bombers, right. and they're doing the same thing with those, and we have to give them the ability to take that 90% down there so they can live to fly another day. Uh, so it's, it's very important, uh, and we're making sure that the Russians don't get it, and we're trying to give the capability uh, for the Ukrainians to get there. No, very good. Um, now, for both of you, um, what other lessons, other than the air superiority piece, um, are you drawing from the war in Ukraine and how they influence both your perspectives? Yeah, Joe again, Kelly. obviously, uh, General Hecker is the expert uh, being right there in the neighborhood. But for the entire Joint Force and for the Air Force, I'd say, first of all, if you think logistics are hard from the Belarusian border down to Kiev, um, getting our material across 7,000 miles of open ocean is tough, tough business. It's tough for our logisticians, and so that's why we have the best and brightest uh, working on it. The other I would say is if you see Ukraine's performance, uh, we have to tip our hat to a professionalized enlisted corps, of which uh, our U.S. not only airmen but soldiers, sailors, Marines help them. Uh, train them to become the professionals uh, that they are today. And then when you look back, this is really outside the scope of ACC, but when you look back at organizational cultures, um, those that uh, welcome dissenting opinions uh, tend to make better decisions than those where a dissenting opinion is not met with uh, not welcome open arms. 
And so uh, I think there'll be a ton of lessons coming out of this, uh, both at the operational level that SCORCH sees every day, and then across the services. Um, and then as we spoke at AFA, um, and SCORCH just talked about today with respect to air superiority, you know, uh, it takes a first-rate Air Force to execute an air defense takedown, to establish air superiority. Um, or you will, whether it be 1918 or whether it be 2022, you'll devolve to a grinding artillery duel in trench warfare with tens of thousands of casualties. Um, it's tough business, yeah. uh, but we've designed our force uh, to execute an air defense takedown, to execute air superiority. And as me and you've talked about, the only thing more expensive than a first-rate Air Force is a second-rate Air Force. Very good. Uh, if, I, if I can add, yeah, jump mm -hmm. in. So the lack of air superiority, let's, let's just say that, let's say the Russians had air superiority. Let's say that they were able to establish that early on. And I think most people feel that that's what they were going to be able to do. And that's why most people feel like this was going to be maybe a 10-day war or something like that. Um, well, since they weren't, but if they were able to, all the equipment that General Austin, or that uh, Secretary Austin, you know, talks to these 45 nations that have given to Kiev, uh, wouldn't have gotten there because there would have been Russian close air support sitting over those land, you know, the, the lines of communication coming in from the other countries. And as soon as it got into Ukraine, it would have been, you know, hit and demolished, similar to what we were able to do in Desert Storm. Um, and then if Ukraine would have had air superiority, you remember the huge line of armor that came down from right. Belarus all the way down to Kiev? You know, that would have just been all taken out. But since neither one has been able to do that, we resort to what Grace just talked about, is this, you know, warfare with 155 millimeter rounds going back and forth that, at least from the Russian side, don't care if you hit hospitals, don't care if you hit uh, schools, don't care if you hit malls, massive destruction, massive casualties, uh, to something that we're not used to. You know, when, when we're talking tens of thousands, we're talking over 100,000 on the Russian side. We're probably talking 40 to 50,000 on the Ukraine side with several estimates saying higher than that. Right. Okay, and this is after 13 months. To put it in perspective, you know, after 20 years in Afghanistan, we had less than 3,000 casualties. Now, every casualty uh, is too many. Um, but when you compare something like less than 3,000 to 150,000, 20 years compared to one year, uh, it just shows that you do not want to fight the war that they're fighting right now. And Western folks won't go for it. And the way you don't fight that fight is you get air, superior, air superiority early on. Roger, well, I appreciate that. I would just add that um, uh, those actions being taken by the Russians are... Uh, totally and completely in violation of the laws of armed conflict uh, and amount to, as we saw the International uh, Criminal Court uh, uh, basically uh, uh, charge uh, uh, President Putin uh, with violation uh, of those laws, and he ultimately will be held accountable one way or another. Um, a related question. Um, the Ukrainian Air Force early on did a masterful job of surviving the initial Russian onslaught. Um, uh, and, and tell me how that relates, and you mentioned it earlier, what kinds of lessons might we take away in the context of agile combat employment? Yeah, we, uh, we're developing a concept called agile combat employment. Uh, the way I look at this, um, back 
30 years ago during Desert Storm and even beyond that. Uh, we had some adversaries that were capable of taking long-range cruise missiles that were you know, somewhat accurate, but not that accurate, or maybe a ballistic missile, and hitting the base. So what we would do is instead of parking our 24 aircraft right next to each other, we would disperse them around the base, and sometimes we would put concrete in between them and those kind of things. Well, as the adversaries got more and more sophisticated, uh, more and more accurate with their weapons, longer range with their weapons, we could no longer do that just amongst one base. We have to move this stuff amongst several bases, and we have to move it at the speed that's quicker than the decision cycle of the adversary. And then when we do that, we have to find a way to command and control it so we can launch them, put them all together to get a certain effect, and then bring them back to different bases than they launched from. Um, so that's what uh, we're you know, striving to do, and that's what we've seen Ukrainian be pretty successful at doing. Um, so we're kind of taking lessons on how they've been able to do this, what are some of the things that prevent them from being 100% capable, and maybe they are only 80% capable, um, and they're going to school on that and figuring out how to get back up to 100, and we're learning through you know, what they're doing. We're also learning on how they're moving their integrated air and missile defense around and how we're going to have to do that as well, again, inside the adversary's decision cycle. Oh, very good. Um, let me switch gears here a second and, and kind of transition between theaters. Um, it was recently announced that F-16s from Spangdalem uh, in Germany are, are going to be redeployed to Kadena um, over on the other side of the world um, to replace, at least temporarily, um, um, our uh, old F-15s that are being sent to the Boneyard. Um, how's this being received by adversaries and partners in the region? Well, um, General Wilsbach could be the expert to see how it was received at Kadena, and then obviously General Hecker may have insights into uh, the population around Spangdal and watching F-16s go all the way over to Okinawa. Um, I'd say it's, it's uh, two reflections regarding our force. One is capability, and that is uh, we can pick up, pack up from anywhere around the globe and get to any other spot of the globe in hours, not days, weeks, months. And that's an incredible capability that is only uh, made possible by Mike Menahan's AMC team, and they do a phenomenal job of get it, getting us there. The other one, which is obvious, and that is uh, this, this deployment followed right on the heels of PACAP F-22s going over to Europe. Uh, we turned around and then took UCOM F-16s and put them in the Pacific. It just goes to show that, A, not only are we capable of getting those forces around the globe, but it goes back to we're stretched with respect to having the capacity to cover down all our, all our demands because we're moving forces around uh, into places and times that, that may not make sense to a lot of people, uh, Europe to the Pacific and Pacific to Europe. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I'll just reiterate the fact that, you know, I think the Air Force uh, took some bad shots there early on um, when it was announced that those airplanes need to be retired. Uh, it wasn't the Air Force's choice. It was the fact that we had iron that is simply wearing out and been used much longer uh, than it was anticipated for. Plus, um, you got the pilot training factor in there too. Those were the last two active duty F-15 C squadrons. And so what are you gonna do? Keep the pilots there forever, their entire career? Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the reason why um, those squadrons um, were retired. And uh, yeah, uh, because of capacity issues, 
You've got to be replaced with rotational skills. And like you um, so well articulated, um, we can do that from anywhere around the world. So in the interim, we'll continue to do that. One thing I would add with that with respect to you guys both probably flew some of those same tail numbers. It, yes. Out of yes. Kena. And so the first thing I would say, uh, and the positive is, it's a testament to our maintainers. The hardest thing an Air Force does is depot maintenance, supply chain, phase maintenance, flight line, and back shop. It's the hardest thing an Air Force does. And they're maintaining those airplanes in high humidity, high salt, right. high G, and they did it longer than anyone else could have kept those airplanes going. You know, uh, what other uh, Air Force has a uh, you know, 30, 40 year old fighter that our young 19 year olds are keeping on the, in the air every day? Yeah, I know that's an important point, so thanks for doing that, making that. Um, let's shift a bit to some Air National Guard issues. Um, the value of the Guard's well understood, captures a lot of experience leaving the active force. Um, the Guard's also the foundation of our Homeland Air Defense missions. Uh, but it's also no longer a strategic reserve to be used just in time of emergency. It's now integrated as the fundamental, as a fundamental element of our Air Force's force structure. So do you see a role of the reserve component changing over the coming decade as a provider for global force management? I don't see a huge amount of change because like we talked about before with the Air Force getting smaller, uh, we need them all. And we can't do our job without our guard and reserve and they do phenomenal work. And as you mentioned, they pull the lion's share of our no-fail homeland defense duty. They pull the lion's share of our presidential support uh, duty when there's a State of the Union, some of the Americas, United Nations General Assembly. There's normally guard aircraft guarding not only just the nation, but the president when he has those no-fail uh, missions. And so, and they're in the same platforms as the active duty uh, Vermont uh, Air National Guard went over and deployed to Yukon uh, in support of Scorch's uh, mission over there. And they did so on short notice and they did it as good and as uh, professional as any active duty unit you have. The entire discussion of force structure lay down, you know, is art and science. And so uh, we got to figure out how much combat power units and airmen do we want to have overseas in uh, Scorches and uh, Joe Wolfsbach's AOR, how much is in Air Combat Command active duty, uh, and then how much is in our reserve uh, component. It's a balance. Uh, we are always working on it. I can't say we always get it right, but we're always focused on it. Uh, very good. Appreciate that. Um, Scorch, here's one for you um, that I, I know you're very familiar with. Uh, and, you know, the question is, what opportunities do you see in leveraging other nation partner capabilities and capacity uh, to work toward meeting our combined, if you will, fighter requirements? Well, you know, our, kind of going back to your last two questions ago, um, all of the NATO members know what our national defense strategy says. And that says that the pacing threat is China. So when you ask, uh, you know, what did they think about having the F-16s from Spangdalem go over to uh, uh, to Kadena? I don't think it was a surprise for them. You know, they, I've been telling them this all along, and they know that we are becoming more and more. Uh, or they have to become less dependent on us and more dependent upon themselves. So we're on that road uh, going forward. And guess what? They're stepping up to the plate. Uh, when you look at it, since, you know, what, what Putin did when he invaded um, the Ukraine was the exact opposite effect that he wanted to have. What actually happened is it united NATO, and matter of fact, it's probably going to grow NATO by a couple uh, more nations. 
for F-35 sales. Uh, we've had four countries commit to sales since the invasion of Ukraine. So the exact opposite of what he's trying to do. Uh, we are now up to having over 600 F-35s by the 2034 timeframe. And out of those 600, there's only going to be about 50 that are U.S. So over 90% are going to be our partners and allies. So they're standing up and they're coming to the plate. Now we have to make sure that we're you know, enabling them to be the best that they can be. And we can do that through information sharing and things like that. Um, as far as the two uh, members that might be joining us with uh, Sweden and, and Finland, tell you what, I've been to both countries. Uh, I've seen both their air chiefs, we've talked, and I've seen their capabilities, and they provide a great capability and great geography that's going to help us uh, should we have to invoke Article 5. We obviously hope that we don't. Um, but both Finland and Sweden really can bring agile combat employment. They've been doing this for the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, and they really can bring a lot to that fight and what they help with us. We know that Finland's going to get uh, 60 F-35s. We know that Sweden's going to get um, some Gripen EF models uh, to supplement their force. And these are all things that are just going to complement NATO and make us more effective at the counter IADS mission and enable us to get air superiority. No, that's great. And you anticipated my next question was going to be to talk a little bit about the importance of Finland and uh of Sweden uh, becoming more active in uh, partnering with the uh, NATO members. Uh, but you handled that, but here's a follow-on for you, uh, and, and that would be to share your perspectives on the NATO missions of enhanced vigilance, uh, enhanced air policing, and now air shielding. Sure. Uh, and how you see these as improving uh, theater defense. Well, uh, when the war kicked off, I wasn't the commander at the time. It was uh, General Harrigan, and what they elected to do, which was exactly the right thing, is we put a bunch of combat air patrols on the eastern flank just to make sure that uh, this conflict would be contained inside of Ukraine and would not spread to any of the NATO members on the eastern flank. And we did that for quite a while, but as you know, during times of Northern Watch and Southern Watch, if that's all you do, um, you lose some readiness, and you also you know, hurt the airplanes and those kind of things. Uh, so what we've shifted to and become more to a steady state is we still have a presence on the eastern coast. We will do some combat air patrols fully loaded with live uh, missiles and things for deterrence. Uh, but what I think is even more of a deterrent is now when we deploy units over there, we practice missions that we actually do should we have to invoke Article 5. Um, so practicing those missions, number one, makes us a lot better, gives us better capability towards those uh, priorities that I mentioned earlier, and I think provides a deterrence value as well. Uh, very good. Um, one of the things that you alluded to, or actually you mentioned it directly, uh, and that's the demand signal for intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance assets. Um, I think that folks are becoming more and more uh, aware of just how important information sharing has been in providing and enabling uh, Ukraine uh, with that critical component uh, to be able to not just hold their own, uh, but to achieve advances as well. Uh, could you talk a little bit, and again, this is for both of you, um, about the demand for uh, AWACS and that kind of information as we move uh, uh, forward into the future? We'll go with 
you first. Yeah. Uh, ISR. No one can ever have enough of it. And, you know, it doesn't matter how many AWACs that we buy as an Air Force or, you know, how many MQ-9s, how many RQ-4s. It's never going to be enough. Um, and no country can ever have enough that they can do this by themselves. So we have to rely on sharing information with our uh, allies and partners. And you can do this a couple different ways. One way you can do it is, hey, you guys buy all your stuff, we'll buy all our stuff, and then we'll try to make it interoperable after we already bought it, which means we need to pay another bill to make it interoperable. Or we can do interoperability by design, what we call integration by design. So now we go, hey, here's the effect that we want. Here's some of the things that we can buy that are already interoperable, have open architecture, and then as nations increase their budget in NATO to 2%, and they're looking for how can they help out themselves, as well as NATO, they can go to the list and go, hey, if I buy one of these, it's going to help me out, but it's also going to be already integrated within the NATO architecture for ISR in this case. But it doesn't just apply to ISR, it applies to integrated air and missile defense, right. et cetera. No, that's very good. Uh, Go ahead. You're no, you say, say no, what our airmen are doing, uh, our, our 16th Air Force airmen that are doing over for Chelp Hecker, whether it be our cyber airmen, our uh, ISA airmen that are airborne, or our airmen that are processing, you know, all the images and signals, uh, et cetera, and providing them not only Chelp Hecker, but the command commander. And then within their construct, they're allowed to, as case by case, share with our partners in NATO and, and elsewhere. You know, what they're doing day in and day out, the struggle that we have is uh, tooting their horn because most of what they do, we can't talk yeah, about because right. it's in the it's in a vault, it's in a very compartmentalized, but I tell you, they're, they're uh, superhumans in what they're doing. They're incredibly smart, incredibly dedicated, and everyone should be proud of them. Yeah, no, um, I can just postulate, but I'm sure when the histories are written after what's going on, we'll see that there's a reason for why the Russians were not all that they were cracked up to be in the context of uh, cyber EW and other things involving the electromagnetic spectrum. Uh, and it wasn't an accident. Um, but moving beyond that, uh, one of the topics that you've talked about uh, before with us is the need to update our airborne early warning platforms. and. Surely Russia's activity in Ukraine's only reinforced that need, but anything else you'd like to expand upon in that regard? No, it really just goes to both the, your comments on the EMS in general, and then John Hecker's need, as well as every MAGCOM commander's need and command commander's need for air domain awareness. And so uh, there's a lot of E in the E7. And so uh, we, need it, uh, we, need a, uh, we need that sensor up, and we need it on a platform uh, that can be sustained along with 6,800 other 737s around the globe, uh, which is going to be uh, helpful for our airmen. But besides that, in the EMS, uh, we need the EC-37 online just as fast as, as we can. Uh, we need our fourth-gen platforms and our fifth-gen platforms to have their organic uh, EA uh, working because, and we need our weapons to be able to not just survive but thrive in a very robust electromagnetic spectrum because uh, it's going to be tough out there and so we need the best the brightest and the most capable platform sensors and weapons we can get awesome and general hecker i've got one for you that i think uh, uh, a lot of our audience would be interested in your perspectives prior to your current assignment um, i think everyone out there knows you're the commander of air university 
Uh, and I think folks would be curious if you took a look in the rearview mirror, um, what changes you might make to the curriculum because of the experiences you've had um, over your time as the youth safety commander the last uh, several months? Well, when I when I got selected to go do that job, one of the things that I looked at doing was I, I wanted to to make it more of a warfighter school. You know, I, I wanted people to, to get excited about it because we kind of saw the end of the Cold War, it kind of happened, and who knows what was going to happen next. So I really wanted to put more teeth in that, uh, and I think we we're, you know, fairly successful in, uh, in uh, General Tullis's, you know, increasing that. If I were to go back and do something different, uh, I think I realize more now than I did back then. I thought I knew back then, but I really didn't. How important, you know, allies and partners are. Um, and, you know, if you look at just what's the value of this country or this country, and if you just look at it in terms of equipment, capabilities, it, it's much more than that. Uh, and I think I would try to teach that uh, to a broader audience. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. Uh, Lithuania. Um, I had their air chief, who's a colonel, by the way, go to one of our NATO uh, air chief meetings that we do. And, and he asked me, he goes, hey, is there, a, is there anything that our country could, you know, help you out with? Because here's what I was thinking. You know, right now I have a radar, and this radar can see um, aircraft but it can't see ballistic missiles. But my country could throw a little bit extra money in and we'd be able to see ballistic missiles. He goes, would that be something that would be of value to NATO? And I'm like, yes. But you think about it, is that a value to Lithuania? It's not, unless somebody shoots that missile down for him, right? So here he is thinking outside the box, more, there's more than just Lithuania. Uh, I'm sure he would hoping we'd shoot it down for him, right? Uh, but it's things like that. Every partner can be an asset. You just got to find where their asset is. And uh, I'm finding between the 30 NATO countries, the two that might come in, and then other ones, quite frankly, uh, they all can provide something and be very useful. No, very good. And if you want any current feedback, I was just down there speaking at ACSE, yeah. and I'm going down next month speaking at Air War College, and there is distinct difference from the previous years I've gone down there and spoken oh. in terms of focus on uh, on war fighting per se uh, and not just uh, block checking on uh, who can write the best Tiger paper. is doing a great job so, down there. Absolutely. Okay, well listen, what we're going to do now is we're going to open the session to uh, Q&A from our audience members who've been listening to the conversation and I just remind folks you can participate either by submitting a question on the uh, uh, Q&A function here or raising your hand. Uh, and uh, so we'll jump right into this. Um, uh, our first uh, question here has been waiting patiently and that would be uh, Michael Gordon. Michael, over to you. So uh, Michael Gordon from the Wall Street Journal. I have two follow-ups um, from your interesting discussion. Uh, one, um, what do you think, what difference do you think uh, 17 MiG-29s will make um, to the Ukrainian armed forces, since that's what's been offered up by Poland and Slovakia, uh, particularly in light of their uh, losses. And my second question is, um, General Daptula made the point that uh, one way to achieve, uh, be more effective in, um, in Ukraine is to suppress the enemy air defenses. But 
Russian uh, radars and S-300s and systems of that sort are located in Belarus and on Russian Federation territory. Is it possible to establish air superiority, superiority in an environment like Ukraine without hitting targets in Belarus and Russian Federation, which raises the concern over escalation? I can uh, take a take a take a hit at that one. As far as the 17 uh, MiG-29s, I think any any more quantity is going to help. This will allow them come at different axes, which will complicate uh, the problem uh, that, that Russia has. Uh, is that going to be the enabler that's going to let them get air superiority? Um, no, I don't think so, not anytime soon. You have to realize, like what you mentioned, um, the integrated air and defense system that both Ukraine, as well as Russia have, is very extensive. And it would be difficult um, from a U.S. perspective uh, to take all that down, you know, in a, in a couple days. Uh, we practice that a lot. We know how to do it. Uh, to do it at scale is very difficult. And I think the, the expectation uh, that we can take a country like Ukraine and do that overnight is unrealistic. Uh, that's a more uh, long-term effort that we'd have to do, and I know that uh, we're looking into uh, ways that we can do that in the long term, but in the short term, we just need to make sure that uh, Russia does not get air superiority, and the best way we can do that is by helping out the Ukrainians with uh, surface-to-air missiles to increase their IADS capability. But my question oh, was, is it possible to do that without hitting targets in, just as a matter of military science, without hitting targets in Belarus and Russian Federation, which is beyond the pale for the U.S. given concerns over escalation. Correct. Yeah, without um, the ability uh, to be able to penetrate those IADs and hit the, uh, the IADs directly, uh, it's going to be a very difficult task uh, for anyone and real difficult for Ukraine to achieve. Well, only thing I'll add is, uh, you know, your question, which is difficult to hit a particular target, you know, and our fine fix, you know, track equation before we target something. Um, very often, it's our non-kinetics that are as effective or more effective than our kinetics. And so I'm not going to get into a lot of words and in and hurts, but one of the reasons why I'm advocating so hard for the EC-37, which frankly operates as much like an EA-37, what it does, our Navy partners bring uh, the Growlers, our uh, onboard EW with uh, F-35 Block 4, which is a software hardware electronic warfare suite that we need. We can do a whole lot without things going boom. Um, and it helps, again, with your escalation management. I'll leave it there. OK, um, as a segue to your last answer, um, I've got a question here from John Turpak, Air and Space Forces Magazine. And here it is. The budget out your docs documents say that among the collaborative combat aircraft will be a, quote, spectral dominance platform, unquote. Should we be thinking about this as being like an EF-111, electronic warfare only, or more like a growler with the ability to shoot at air and ground threats? Yeah. Um, hey, John. Uh, first of all, I hate to disappoint, but hey, I don't know. Uh, I think it's a lot of TBD. I think that'll part of those discovery items will come out when we do our first uh, developmental test and operational test and see what's in the art of the possible uh, going forward. But I think all of those things you listed will be in the discussion as far as exactly where we'll land 
I think we'll have to go through testing to finally get the solution uh, we're looking for. Okay, here's one from uh, Eric Schmidt, uh, New York Times. General Hecker, how concerned are you that the Ukrainian Air Force and Ukrainian air defenses will continue to be able to stave off the larger Russian Air Force? Um, what are the consequences if not? Yeah, this is, uh, this is what, when I tell you that Secretary Austin calls those 45 countries together 10 times, uh, the last three to four times, this has been the number one request, is to make sure that their integrated air and missile defense system has the capacity, particularly the number of missiles needed, uh, to continue to hold off the Russian Air Force, uh, like you mentioned. Um, so far, uh, the NATO nations uh, have answered the call, and I think they will continue to do that uh, in the future. Everything tends to lead in that direction. Uh, if they are not, as you mentioned, if they're not able to do that, uh, the problem becomes significantly higher for Ukraine to be able to hold their own. Okay, here's uh, uh, one from uh, Bill Smith. With 700 or so net cuts in aircraft inventory in just a few years, how will the pilots be handled? Um, with the pilot shortage already pretty large in fighters, um, it seems that uh, we need to pay a lot more attention to this and come up with a plan uh, inside the Air Force. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, take a stab. No, it's actually a, a good observation. Um, frankly, today, um, we, we don't have a chronic uh, pilot shortage. Um, we need our demand signals around 21,000 uh, pilots. And we are roughly 1,600-ish, uh, 1,650 short. And so you're talking we're over 90% man. The caveat, though, is that we do have a fighter pilot shortage. Um, we have a chronic fighter pilot shortage. And then when you peel that back even further, there's an experience uh, challenge within the uh, fighter force. And so the balance of getting through uh, pilot training with the commensurate skill sets to getting to your operational unit being absorbed uh, and being a contributing member of, um, you know, deployment society uh, is a challenge that we work at every day. That's one of the reasons why I stay close uh, with um, uh, General Robinson, AETC, keep my finger on the pulse of the T-7, because like many of our platforms, we needed, uh, we needed it six, eight years ago. And so it's going to bring a great uh, training assistance to our entire Air Force and the Fighter Force uh, specifically. Uh, but we do work close with our weapon system sustainment accounts to make sure we can generate the commensurate number of sorties. Uh, right now, our young aviators aren't flying uh, enough, uh, but we work every day to try to try to bump that number. Uh, but it's a continual problem that they were working 20 years ago. I just would rather set the conditions so we're not working it 20 years in the future. Uh, very good. Um, here's one from uh, retired Major General Larry Stutzream, who uh, works on the Mitchell Institute staff. General Hecker, with respect to the flanker that collided with the Reaper, we watched the video, and it seems the flanker lost sight at the last minute on a collision vector. However, news reports say it's still undetermined whether this was a deliberate attempt to collide and down the Reaper. Is this just another example of undisciplined, incompetent Russian airmanship? I think it is. Um, if you... Uh Look at, you saw the video um, that we put out there. Uh, what you didn't see is there are several attempts on the first piece of that video. 
where they would uh, start an intercept, they would put on uh, and start dumping fuel uh, uh, all over the skies and then fly right in front of the MQ-9. Uh, and it did that several different times, um, and we don't know exactly uh, what the intent uh, was, but it obviously wasn't something that was uh, safe and professional. Uh, and then we saw true incompetence when on the last attempt to do that same maneuver, uh, the pilot basically uh, had too much energy coming in, uh, couldn't get out of it, and clipped the, uh, the propeller of the MQ-9, uh, which took the MQ-9 uh, down. Um, so uh, we hadn't seen these kind of uh, attempts recently uh, by, by Russia, uh, uh, but this was definitely uh, unprofessional. It's something that we would not stand for from any of our aviators uh, in NATO doing. Uh, and then ultimately, it was incompetence on the pilot uh, that we believe accidentally hit the MQ-9. Um, here's one from uh, Alex Wallace. This is for General Kelly. How do we preserve critical skills within the C2ISR community during legacy um, AEW jet divestments in the fielding of the E7 and other similar systems? It's uh, a really good question. It was actually a topic uh, we had this week. And so it's what led to uh, the discussion and then the follow-on decision uh, for us to send an advance uh, team over to Australia, specifically RAF Williamtown, where the uh, E-7 uh, squadron is uh, there. And so our airmen and their uh, aviators and uh, ABMers and the whole gamut are there arm-in-arm uh, -arm with Australian partners uh, learning uh, the E-7 and keeping their skills at that. And then uh, we still have, obviously, our E-3 fleet that will be with us, you know, until E-7 comes online. But no, and then we have to maximize the use of our, our simulators and make sure that they're up to speed. So, But no, it's a good question, and it's a, uh, a challenge we eyeball every day, but we have actually pretty good lines of effort uh, drawn out for this. Um, here's one I don't know if you all realize, but we recently stood up a uh, uh, uninhabited uh, vehicle center of excellence in the uh, Center for Autonomy, and this comes from that shop. Do you believe future... Uninhabited technologies like autonomous, I'm sorry, anonymous, autonomous, anonymous too, uh, <laughs> sworn drones uh, and loyal wingmen, uh, collaborative combat aircraft, whatever you want to call them, uh, can these completely replace the capabilities of MQ Next and the majority of the re current remotely piloted force? I have, that, that's one for both of you. Yeah, I'll start, and then of course, General Hecker was former 432nd Wing Commander, and so is the expert here. But um, the one thing I talked to our team about at ACC, and we have a good last shot uh, with the uh, Pentagon and the A57 team as we go forward on our CCA effort, is uh, we got to make sure that we don't. Uh, let the capability and the autonomy uh, outpace the authority. And what I mean by that is uh, today uh, there's so much capability on MQ-9. I could land it um, at Dulles or Reagan or any airport in the globe. I still don't have the authority to fly it over the national airspace system. So when you look at that as a nascent autonomy, uh, the autonomy 101, and then you scope it out to, well, bring in the sensors, bring in weapons, bring in authorities, we got to make sure that whatever autonomy we bring in, uh, we don't let it outstrip the authority or vice versa. And so, and then I'll pitch it over to Scorch for his perspective. 
Yeah, I think this is, uh, you know, of course, Grace, agree with everything that you said. And I think this is something we need to kind of ease our way into. Um, we don't want to say this is an end-all, be-all. This is going to, you know, get us air superiority uh, against a sophisticated IADS and, and, and go all in on that. I think we need to start taking, you know, a couple of these vehicles along with a manned vehicle and see how, how synergistic the two can be. Uh, and then if we're seeing success there, then we probably have to go after some authorities that, uh, that Grace mentions, get those authorities, and then keep adding to it and, uh, and kind of see where we're at. And I think this will be... Over time, it's going to take a while to figure out the exact mix of this, but I think as what you'll see as we go down this path is you'll increase uh, the number of the autonomous aircraft compared to the number of uh, manned aircraft. Um, here's a related one, again, for both of you. Um, and Scorch, I know you, you're familiar with this, and, well, just about all of us have been, but... Um, it took forever for the FAA to feel safe with uh, remotely piloted aircraft. Do we think the National Aerospace System is going to allow collaborative combat aircraft, not remotely controlled, to fly around all the fighter bases so the air crews can train effectively with them? Mm -hmm. I think I think it's not that much different than the previous question with respect to authorities, and that is you have to make people confident. Uh, the only way you can prove uh, you make them confident is to, to do. And so besides the fact, like I spoke earlier, you can't let your autonomy to a great extent outstrip your authority, but it also can't outstrip your resilient comms. Um, our, our, our CCAs uh, will only go as far as the resilient comms let them go. And uh, if we got into uh, outside range airspace, restricted airspace, or outside international airspace, but we got into the national airspace system and had a loss of communication, that would definitely not build confidence, um, especially if something or some person was hurt on the ground. Yeah, I, I think I'm with Grace on this. It's just gonna, we're gonna have to build confidence, and we had to do that early on. Uh, we were only allowed to fly uh, our unmanned aircraft in restricted airspace. Uh, and then we go, okay, we wanna go from one restricted airspace across some FAA uh, airspace into another restricted airspace. Uh, and that took a while to gain the confidence of the FAA to be able to do that. And we had to show that we had the ability, if we did lose communication with that asset, um, what was going to happen. And we showed them that there's an emergency mission that happens and it comes back into the restricted airspace. And there's several redundancies to make sure that that happens. Uh, and there's a lot of nervousness. You know, the first you know, 10, 15 times we did this. Uh, but then uh, as uh, we continue to do this, we gain trust uh, with the FAA, and you see nowadays uh, we do this fairly routinely. Uh, again, here's a related one. This is from Steve Tremble, uh, uh, Aviation uh, Week in Space Technology. Is the FAA restriction on using Link 16 in CONUS causing any delays or complications for your modernization programs? Uh, I frankly would flip it around. I'd say um, our, well, our crypto, first of all, you have to have the right crypto loaded in. I won't go into a big crypto one-on-one chat just because it takes time. But bottom line is FAA has been good partners with this. Uh, we are late to need to modify all of our crypto. And so very often the FAA is waiting on us to submit um, the temporary flight authority so we can actually fly in the national airspace system. 
Um, sometimes, obviously, we submit those. They got they get stacked up, and we'll end up waiting on them. But that's just normal admin processing. Yeah. Okay, uh, General Hecker. Here's one that's sort of in your bailiwick uh, from Bill Bruner. Um, what is the status of NATO cooperation uh, with the Republic of Turkey at this time? Is Injilik our sole detachment operating? Uh, in, uh, in in Turkey right now today? Yeah, we, we have a, a good relationship uh, with Turkey and, you know, our, our, our hearts go out uh, to them. I think we all know uh, the earthquake that they had and all the devastation that we had there. Uh, Interlik was the primary way that we got supplies into theater uh, to help them out. Uh, and we, you know, put in over 100 aircraft uh, in less than 24 hours with equipment that they needed uh, to support um, the victims that, that we had there and then uh, the follow-on efforts uh, for uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Uh, but we have a good relationship um, with Turkey. And obviously, you know, you, you, you see things uh, on TV and the politics. For me, I stay out of that. You know, that is a political thing, and I'm military, and I have a great relationship with their chief of staff of their Air Force, and we look at the best way to do things militarily. Uh, and then if there are politics that come about, uh, that's not for me. That's, uh, that's for our civilian leadership to deal with. Okay, we're coming up toward the end of our time. One of the things that uh, both of you discuss is the importance of command and control throughout all of this, but we didn't really get specific in the context of um, the Air Force's element of the Joint All-Domain Command and Control System, and that's um, how we're doing with the Advanced Battle Management System. Uh, any thoughts and perspectives on its importance and where we stand in terms of actualizing those concepts? Yeah. Well, the importance is an understanding it's critical. You know, it's the network we're going to fight on, you know, and it has to be not only have resilient, uh, resilient comms, has to have resilient data links, has to have a high throughput and, and, and bandwidth. Um, and it has to bring in all of our allies and partners, you know, into, if we get into uh, um, a joint all domain command and control net and we can't bring in our really key partners, Australians and UK and all of our other great allies and partners, you know, uh, that's not gonna fit the bill. And so a lot of great smart people working on it and a whole bunch of energy and that's why it's obviously one of the secretary's focus, the wise. I agree. Can't say it any better. Uh, obviously, extremely important uh, to get this right. Um, but then I think extremely important that if we don't get it exactly right and we don't have the capability to communicate to our folks in the field, that we have a backup plan. And that backup plan includes on every air tasking order that we put out, there's some mission-type orders that go out for however many days, four or five days, that tell that commander exactly what the mission and what the intent of the commander is and we call that mission command so we got to make sure that every commander in the field knows exactly what's expected of them should we lose communication with them uh, and we need to do that for a period of time and then hopefully uh, we'll quickly get that command and control back and we'll be able to update the guidance well everyone unfortunately we've come to the end of our uh, session General Kelly, uh, General Hecker, thanks so much for making the time to be here today. And I think all of you out there would agree with me that the United States Air Force is really fortunate to have leadership uh, like this, uh, leading our Air Force in uh, uh, critical times. So from all of us at uh, Mitchell Institute, we wish you all the best. And everyone out there, have a great aerospace power kind of day. Thank you.